Welcome to Extra Credit, hosted by the Rutgers University Office of Summer and Winter Sessions. Listen to hear from students as they share their experiences at Rutgers and some tips on how to navigate a condensed semester. Also gain the perspective of professors and learn more about the courses they teach. So thanks for joining us today, taking time out. I know that the new uh, semester just started, so I know everyone's going a little crazy. Um, so can you introduce yourself and uh, just like tell us a little bit about yourself to the new audience? Sure, my name is Joel Plummer. Uh, this is my uh, 13th year or so teaching in the Africana Studies Department. I teach a course that I, that I created uh, when I first started teaching at Rutgers entitled African Americans in Sports. So my, my interests are African American history, um, specifically 20th century African-American history, uh, African-Americans in sports and the political and economic um, consequences of wide scale participation in sports. And of course, uh, my other job is that I've also been a secondary history teacher for more than 20 years. So my other um, area of work is, is teaching at the secondary level. And the third thing I, I do is that I'm a professional photo, photojournalist. So when I'm not teaching, I'm taking pictures of news and, and sporting events. And so really, my work at Rutgers allows me to combine my passion for education, African-American history, and my, and my media work all into one nice package. Awesome. Wow. That's really impressive. Yeah, 13 you. years sounds like a very long time, so I, I give you props. <laughs> So how did you kind of get into this field? You know, you I mean, you've been in it for a good chunk of time. Well, I have to go back in time um, to when I was a, a young lad in in school and I grew up and I'm from Plainfield, Plainfield, New Jersey. So about half hour away from from Rutgers. But I, I went to a school that was predominantly black. The student population was predominantly black. I went to 13 years of public school with black principals, an entirely black board of education, black superintendents. And I came out of 13 years of public schooling, knowing almost nothing about my own history. There was one African-American history class uh, taught by this man named uh, Houston, Houston Robinson, who was a legend in my town, um, first black teacher at, at um, believe the first black teacher at Plainfield High School. And he taught a course on African-American history. And that kind of sparked my, my interest in it. But what pushed me towards education is in between sophomore and junior year, I was in a leadership program for young black and Latino students that, that had potential. And it's a two-year program. And, and in the second year of that program, they made us teach algebra to middle school students from, from Newark. And I absolutely hate math, but I had to do this, this thing. I had to teach. Anyway, I get assigned a student and I'm teaching her basic algebra and I'm just one page ahead of her because I, I don't even like math myself, but I'm teaching her how to solve like a basic equation, solve for X type of thing. That's one day. The next day comes, she comes back and she's struggling to figure out the equation. And I, I reach over, I'm sitting next to her, I reach over to her desk to try to help her. She was like, no, I got it. You taught me this yesterday. And she figured it out. And at that moment, I felt like king of the world. 
Like I realized, okay, she knows something in life exclusively because of me. Like I made that moment happen. And this is a subject that I hate. This is something I, I despise. So imagine if I was spending all day teaching something I actually loved. And so since I was 15 years old, I knew I, I wanted to be a teacher and I knew I knew I wanted to teach African-American history. And then uh, how I got to Rutgers is I'm a graduate two times over of, of, from Rutgers North. Um, undergraduate and my master's in, in history are, are from there. I was an undergrad. I was an African studies major. So I had always had a connection to Rutgers. My father was a dean at Rutgers for, for years, decades. I literally grew up on, on campus. I went to Rutgers Livingston Daycare Center for, for preschool. And for me, it's like, you know, coming full circle from being a, a three-year-old on the, on the, in the daycare center to now teaching on, on the same campus I grew up on as, as a child. That's amazing. So it sounds like it's a, like there's some similarities between your beginnings to your recent book, The Sumo Wrestlers and Supermodels. So can you tell me a little bit about that book and why you wrote it? Sure. So the book is entitled Sumo Wrestlers and Supermodels, What 20 Years of Teaching Has Taught Me About uh, Saving Black Children from American Schools. And I wrote it because when I first started teaching, like many young teachers, my goal was to go into the classroom, you know, and I'm going to save the world. And I have this, and I did a good job, right? I, I go to my classroom. Kids love my classes. They're, they're super excited. And I, as a young teacher, I used to go home feeling good, good about it. Like I, I nailed it today. And my students would give me this compliment that eventually started depressing me. Some of them would say to me, you know, Mr. Plummer, your class is the only reason why I come to school. My class is 40 minutes long. The school day is like seven hours long. That means that in this kid's mind, they're wasting most of, most of their day. And so I was no longer content with just being a good teacher in, in my classroom. I had to figure out, I, I decided, look, I need to figure out a way to duplicate what I do. One of the reasons I, I argue that my kids like my class and were frustrated with so many of their other classes was because the way schools are designed, they're designed in a generic fashion. It's a, basically a one-size-fits-all education. And in my book, I make the argument that that's particularly detrimental to Black children. We all know, or hopefully we understand, that there's no such thing as, as biological races. But what is real, though, is culture. Right? There, there's no such thing as a pure biological black, black race, but there is black culture and shared socio-historical experiences that shape the way you look at the world. And people that grow up in different areas and different places view the world differently and often have different goals for, for the world. And so the argument I, I make in the book is that if you have black children that are growing up powerless, by powerless, I mean doesn't control its food source, where it gets water, where it gets electricity, where it gets internet service, where it gets clothing. An education, a generic education, which is what we generally get, teaches Americans how to maintain the system as it is, fit into the system and maintain it. But when you're powerless people, often outside the system, the goal of the education shouldn't be for you to maintain power. It should be 
teaching you how to attain power. And so I argue that when you give black kids this generic education that doesn't fit them, it's as detrimental as training a supermodel the same way you would train a sumo wrestler. Right? You could be the best, best of sumo wrestler trainer in the world. You're legendary. But now you have a supermodel. And if you train that supermodel the same way you train your, your, your sumo wrestlers, same diet, same exercise routine, same clothing, when she walks out on the runway, it's going to be a disaster. You have the best supermodel trainer coach in, in the world, and they're training a sumo wrestler and teaching the sumo wrestler how to be, how to dress like a supermodel, how to eat like a supermodel, work out like a supermodel. When that person walks into a ring with a real sumo wrestler, they're going to get obliterated. And I argue that's the disconnect that's causing this, this gap um, in schools with, with black children. Right. Wow. That's really powerful. Uh, so what do you, like the, your overall message, if you could leave your reader with one message, what would it be? Yeah. So the, the book is divided up in two sections. One, one part is describing the problem. And then the other part is explaining practical things that teachers can do to fix the problem. I'm telling them, I'm telling other teachers and parents what they should be looking for in good teachers, what works from real life experience. And what I want people to take away from this is that children are not generic widgets. Education has to be tailored to meet the needs of the kids in any particular room. You, you can't give a one size fits all education and get the most out of children. And, and that's the point of the book. I need people to understand that you can't teach strangers. You have to know and care about these students, understand their worldview in order to, to change their educational experience. Right, right, yeah. I have to say, I was very, very shy as a child. The teachers that were most effective for me were the ones who saw that, and then instead of just like forcing me out of that bubble, just like got down to my level, was like, do you have any questions? And eventually, you know, I grew up, I'm not three anymore, and I, you know, like started being like, okay, like this is how you speak up, and you know, stuff like that. So I, I can definitely see your argument there. That's very powerful. It's interesting that you bring that up. I have a, a chapter in the book called The Smartest Guy in the Room. And it's about teachers going out of their way to make sure every single student at some point in the class gets to be the star in some way. So you might have a kid that doesn't like to talk, but they might be an incredible artist. So you go out of your way to make sure you do some type of assignment where they can show off. You find something that every kid is is proud of and that they can share that, that they can show off. It might be the kid that's in the school play and you make sure you go to that play. And the next day you talk about it in in class. You you make that kid a star for 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 a day. Even the quietest kid, there's there's something that they're really enthusiastic about just because confidence is transferable. I will say that was, I would say, the beginning of me coming more out of my shell just because that teacher, unlike others, didn't try to force anything on me, just kind of like understood and just kind of let me. She helped. You know, we did exercises and when I was comfortable, I would speak, but she she let me find my way. She let me stumble. And I think that was essential to my growth. She met you where you were. You should absolutely send her a message. In the last chapter of my book, I say the only reward for teaching, the 
absolute only reward is that occasional thank you that you get from a student when the student says you actually made a difference in my life. Like we, we live for that. So, so send, send that message. Uh, that, that's the type of message that makes a teacher think, think that their whole career was, was worthwhile. I hope she does know that. Changing topics a little bit. So your summer session course, African-Americans in sports, can you tell us a little bit about that course? I always had this idea of connecting African-American history, sports, and politics and economics together. And so when I got the opportunity to teach a course, they asked me to teach something that wasn't already on the books. And so I pitched the idea of this African-Americans in sports class. And what it is, it's a Trojan horse that we use to examine race, politics, economics, and gender in America. Because it's the thing about sports that's unique, and maybe music is, is similar. It's one of the few things that touch everybody on, on every level. And there's something about sports that reveal passions, taps in to some people's true, true self. And we can examine that to find out what people really think about society. For example, when LeBron James left Cleveland to go to Miami, he had fans, I don't remember what day of the week it, it, it was. I don't know, let's say it was, let's say he left on a Tuesday, right? The Monday before, he had fans in Cleveland that adored him, treated him like a god. As soon as he decided to leave, the, the flip, the switch is flipped, and they despise him. Like these same same fans that loved him the day before are now sending him um, heinous racist tweets. I mean, he had and he he posted a, a long line of 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 a racist tweets that like every racial epitaph you could think of coming at him. And I look at that and say, you know what? That person that sent that tweet didn't love black people the day before. And then all of a sudden, all these words start coming out, out, of, out of their mouth just because LeBron James left. That's something that was already in that person. And their favorite player leaving, taking agency uh, over his own life and deciding to do what's best for him instead of entertaining everyone else, brought that out. And I'm like, OK, we need to examine this. This says something about race relations in, in Cleveland, about racial attitudes in Cleveland. Right. But we wouldn't have gotten that if LeBron James hadn't moved and pulled that out of people. Sports reveals that. It reveals issues that, that, that are hidden. And the other thing we, we look at when we in, in this course is we look at the economic situa situation. The money-making sports, particularly look at college, look at basketball, look at football, um, look at a college and look at it in the pros. You'll see many black people work in the fields, but very few in management, very few in ownership. And so we look at the history of this arrangement. Why is it that these, these people are able to be the product, but they're not trusted to, to manage the product? It didn't matter how great you were working the field. There's this ceiling. It's the history of black people being valued for their bodies, not for their minds. And nothing, nothing highlights that more than, than sports. And so these are the things we, we, we deal with. And I tell my students all the time, don't take my course if you think it's going to be like a sports trivia class where you think you're going to learn like who hit the most home runs in, in the 1977 playoffs and you can win bar bets. Like that's not what we're, we're about here. We're just using sports as a way 
to dig deeper into the American psyche. Right. Yeah. Um, it it accelerates very quickly. Um, so I can I can definitely like see how sports can bring it out of people, you know, like their true colors, definitely. Um, so specifically to your in your course or just, you know, things that you have found in general, um, how do you promote good communication in a remote environment? For me, it doesn't change in that, like I said, the most important thing for me is that I know my students. And so that's why I make sure I, and I the semester just started and I haven't even gotten a chance to teach my material yet because I spent the first two classes actually getting to know my students. Because I, I can't teach you virtually as, as a stranger, as just some name on, on, on a screen. I, I really have to have some idea of, of where you're from, what, what your aspirations are, are, are in life. And so you, again, whether you're in person or whether you're virtually, you have to make the effort to meet, to understand your students as real humans, not just some object to, to be worked on. You have to take the time to to meet your students and try to bond with them as much as you can at the beginning of the of the class to to make the whole semester work. So lastly, uh what is some advice that you have for a student taking your summer course? Just remember, and this is my advice for for any summer course. Remember that summer courses are super concentrated. And so you you have to have you have to understand that coming in Missing a day of summer school is like missing a week in, in a, in a regular, regular course. So you have to have enough discipline and you have to know yourself. You have to know that you have enough discipline to stay engaged for class sessions that, that are, that are longer. You have to know that you can't miss class and you have to know that, that I'm going to finish this course in a month or so, but I'm still doing all the work pretty much all the work that would happen in a normal course. And so you need to have the self-discipline to, to get all that work done in a, in a finite amount of time. But it's, it's a very efficient thing though. If, if you can, if you can pull it off as a summer school student, you can, you can accomplish a lot in, in a summer in a very short period of time with, with no loss of, of information. So long as you're, you're serious and you're, and you're focused. Well, thank you. That, I mean, that was amazing. Thanks for sitting down with us and, you know, talking about this stuff, about your course and, you know, your passion. Um, it was, honestly, it was like, you really opened my eyes. It was awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Extra Credit.